I know some people won't like that I say this, but like the set designer and the director for me really kind of start the train down the tracks. They kind of need to do that because a scenic design could go any number of ways. I'm notorious for pulling up the scenic designer's rendering and trying to match it on stage, match the color, match the angle. And then the set designer looks up and then they go, oh my God, that looks like the thing I made in my house six months ago. I like to tell people I'm actually a professional haze wrangler and sometimes I, I do lighting design. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Anna Aguilera. On this episode, we will be talking to Corey Paddock about lighting design. Corey Paddock is a New York-based lighting designer and the host of In One, the podcast. With credits on Broadway, Off-Broadway, in regional theatre and international productions, Corey is a proud member of the United States or the United Scenic Artists Local 829 and holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in Design Technical Theatre from Syracuse University. Welcome to the show, Corey. Of course. I am not too familiar with uh, the scene in Brazil. Their street culture and pub culture and art out in the streets that it's not in like official venues is huge. So I don't know if you had any feedback towards what you were doing and how that enriched. It's a good question to ask, and you're not going to like the answer. But I get this question a lot because I work all over the world. People are like, oh, you're in Brazil. That must be amazing. And and let me say two things. One, Sao Paulo is, is not Rio. It's a very urban metropolis. It's a lot of office buildings. The theater that I, I work in, the Teatro Santander, is literally in the basement of an office park. I forget, there's a big company that's offices are above it and I'm blanking on it now. But it's like literally, it's literally, there's like a parking lot and there's like glass office buildings. So it's not this like huge cultural hub. It's not like a theater district. It's literally on this next to a giant mall. But but the, the main answer, which I'm sad to say, is that unfortunately, I just don't get time to explore these fabulous places. Now I know I could probably make time, but the way I work, generally, I'm at the theater at 9 a.m. And we're usually there till midnight. And, you know, in America, we work six days a week. Sometimes in these South American countries, we work seven days a week. There might not even because there's no unions. So there's no mandated day off. So often we're working six or seven days a week. I'm there all day long. I'm exhausted. When we do have a day off, I have to do laundry. I have to I have other shows I have to I have to have conference calls with and I have to draft the next show. And so, yes, do we go out for dinner? Do I say, please take me to, to your favorite spot to eat? And and I want to try the most amazing dish that you eat in this town. Absolutely. I love food. I love eating in cities around the world. It's one of my favorite things about being a designer. But there isn't a ton of sightseeing time. I think people think about when actors do a show. Once the show opens, they have all day to sort of like go to the beach and go to the museums and then come do a show at night. Um, I'm only in a certain city for the amount of time that it takes to tech that show. Um, I get there right for focus. And then I leave, if not before opening night, I leave right after opening night. So with the exception of a day, a day or two, you know, and if, there, if, if there's a really important thing in a city, I try to go see it on a day off or go to go to where the big nightlife is. But Aside from one or two opportunities, 
I'm just, I'm sadly, I'm there to work and I'm, and I'm in the theater all day long. And then I get on a plane and go somewhere else. It's a little sad. You know, I was like, I mentioned before we started recording, I was in Tokyo in 2019. I was doing a cruise ship show. We docked in Japan for literally like half a day. And so I was in Tokyo from like noon to 7 p.m. And we had a day off. And that was my Asia experience. I got to be in Tokyo for one afternoon. It was amazing. We ran around. We ate as many places as we could. We ate street food. We did it all. It was great. But it was only an afternoon. And then it was back on the ship and back to work. There's not a ton of opportunities to be a tourist in all the places I go. But I try to squeeze it in when I can. My question was more uh, in the cultural sense, more than the tourist sense. Since you're already working with local people that are already very active in the local scene, and their scene is so different to what we can be exposed to here, I wonder how that interaction was like, okay, I show you about musical theater. What are you guys comparing it to? Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer. I mean, I will say... A lot of the people that I've worked with in Sao Paulo have worked on like Carnival. And so there are there are amazing artisans down there who are fantastic painters or sculptors or, or you know, who are, who are doing parts, costumes and scenery for our shows. So they certainly bring with them that skill. And also there is like a lot of the stage managers I work with work on Carnival or worked on the Olympics or things like that. And so they're good at, organ, you know, the organization that requires, uh, that's required to do those sorts of jobs. They bring that with them, having worked on those things. In terms of like the cultural influence, you know, the other problem is the stuff I've done there, frankly, has been like American style musical theater. I did Singing in the Rain and I did Sunset Boulevard in Sao Paulo. And to be, to be perfectly honest, like there wasn't a strong interest to make them feel super Brazilian or South American, the goal was to like make it feel like a show you would see in New York. And so the influences of the local culture did not have a lot of opportunities to kind of embed themselves in the work. I'm, sh I'm certainly sure other kinds of work down there, absolutely, that that culture can seep in more. But this, because this was a really specific kind of show that we were making, there wasn't a ton of opportunity for that. But they certainly bring their skills as craftsmen and artisans that's for sure how is that kind of show received in that part of the world i mean i know you probably fly away from it and don't don't see the audience <laughs> i always ask that afterwards i'm like did they like it how? and you know there's often not a lot of um, like even critics down there i will say the lighting was received well both of those shows i did i received an award in brazil for which was very lovely but um, I think they're really well received. I think, again, there is a market for this kind of show. And actually, Sao Paulo does have a history of doing uh, a, a Broadway shows. There have been the Brazilian productions of Wicked and Lion King and Adam's Family. A lot of, and a lot of times the original Broadway designers or creatives are even involved to a certain extent. Uh, it may not be a national tour that 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 we send down, but maybe an associate from the Broadway production will go light it or something like that. So they do know about Broadway American theater. And it seems to be something they really like because these shows run for months down there. You know, a, a Lort show will run for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. They're running these shows for months in Brazil. Singing in the Rain, I know, was huge for them. Uh, often they will often cast 
really recognizable names like big TV stars or movie stars in in Brazil, and they'll be the leads, and they are often really huge ticket draws uh, as well. Um, so I think they do well. I hope they do well. I will say their new president has not been super kind to the artistic community down there, the support and furthering of art. So I know that that's taken a bit of a hit, but um, I'm sure that they're, they they are are still keeping it together. And I, and I hope to go back down there soon. All right. Well, uh, now we'll get to my creative process question. The Tell us what your, it's always, you, you said at the beginning of this podcast that you're fascinated by process and so am I, especially when it comes to creative process, um, because how an individual approaches that and the time that it takes um, is always fascinating to me. So for you, what is your creative process and how do you uh, evolve your lighting designs? Well, let me say I do mainly musicals, um, not not strictly musicals, but I might do one or two plays a year, but I do mainly musicals. And I only mention that to say that it usually starts with the music. Um, if it's a show that exists, I do some new musicals, but I certainly do plenty of existing shows that have albums already. So um, it starts with the music. And the minute I know I'm doing a show, uh, I just start engrossing myself in the music. Now, I also happen to be a huge musical theater fan. It's how I got into theater 30 year, some years ago. Um, so chances are I, I actually already know the music because I know most musicals um, and can sing you most of them. So um, I don't usually, it's not about learning them from scratch, uh, but it's like familiarizing myself, re-remembering re things that I've maybe forgotten. And then if it's a new musical, it's like, what can you send me? Do you have demo recordings? Do you have files from your computer that you made on GarageBand? Like, what can I hear? I want to hear what the music is. So it starts with the music and just becoming really, really familiar with it. And then, of course, reading the script. If it's a show, you know, I did like The Music Man a couple years ago. Like, I've done The Music Man before. I've seen it a million times. I didn't even need to read the script. Like I, I knew I knew we were doing Music Man. You know, I'll, I'll see the script at the at the first rehearsal. But if it's a show I can't, I don't remember super well or, or something I've never done, certainly read the script. And then it's about uh, getting together with the director and, and talking about what they're, why are we doing the show? What is their vision for the show? What do they want to say with it? And then I try not to get super deep in it until I see where the set designer is heading. I know some people won't like that I say this, but like the set designer and the director for me really kind of start the train down the tracks. They kind of need to do that because a scenic design could go any number of ways. It could be super realistic. It could be super abstract. Um, it could be a million different things. And I'm going to tailor my approach to the visual world that the scenic designer and the set and the director have created. So I kind of don't want to get too deep in my head until I see what they're thinking. And I, I like to be in those early meetings and see sketches and renderings and models. And then once I start seeing that, then I can start envisioning how light can work in that in that space. I love, I told you I like really long podcasts. I also like really long design meetings. I love getting in a room with the director and the scene designer and the model. And I have the, the cast album on my phone and we're playing the overture and we've got our hands in the monitor and we're lifting curtains and pulling little furniture pieces off. And, you know, I was doing all this when I was like a kid. I'm just thrilled that I get to do it for a living now, or I used to do it for a living. Now it's back to me in my apartment, moving things to the rent album. You know, so we just sit and we play and we talk about ideas and we talk about transitions and how we could get from here to there. And I say, well, I think that we could black out 
upstage and then we could move this off and then, okay, well, let's time this transition. Oh, oh, we found a bootleg on YouTube that has the transition music from scene three to scene four. Let's play the transition music and see how long it takes. We'd have to fly the curtain out and we just sit and play and come up with how it, how it all works. Uh, and then I go home and make a light plot, um, which is based on all of those conversations and figuring out where I need light and how to make the scenery look good and how to light the people and how to not hit that drop with the light and how to light people behind the scrim and a million other things that the lighting has to do. And, um, and I hope that I've done it correctly. And thankfully, the more I do this, the better I seem to know what the plot needs to be. And then eventually we show up in the theater and all the scenery's there and the lights are hung and we point them all and we start making light cues. And hopefully we are making the thing that, that is reminiscent of the thing we talked about two months ago. And sometimes it looks just like the rendering. Um, I'm notorious for pulling up the scenic designer's rendering and trying to match it on stage, match the color, match the angle. And then the set designer looks up and then they go, oh my God, that looks like the thing I made in my house six months ago. And so, you know, we do that and we discover new things and we throw out ideas that don't work anymore. Yeah, I don't, you know, there's not like a ton of research. I know a lot of designers go into huge research holes. They have to, costume designers, scene designers. I don't do a ton of research for lighting. Um, my research is, is A, just existing in the world and just seeing, you know, what a sky looks like. Um, but then also, uh, again, a lot of the shows I do... Um, the scenic designer has sort of established the palette. And so my research research is often their research and their renderings, and I'm making sure I'm supporting what they are doing. And so I'm not necessarily going deep down into archives because I don't necessarily care what lighting, you know, I, I did a show recently. So it was like a jazz club in the twenties or something. I don't actually super care what the actual lighting of a jazz club in the twenties looked like. Um, it was all about, it was a big musical. It was a fantasy. Not, none of it's real. It's all cardboard on stage anyways. So it's like, it was, it was more about creating an environment and a mood and supporting the music and, and making the scenery look spectacular and making the people look beautiful and accomplishing all of these things because this, this is not a documentary. Um, it's a piece of musical theater. And there are absolutely some kinds of musicals that want to be really, really true to, to some sort of nonfiction research. But generally I find musicals to be a, 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 com a completely sort of fun and, and, and kind of by the seat of your pants, anything goes sort of medium. And so um, I'm more interested in, in saying like, what do we want to create? And less interested in, you know, whereas a costume designer, you know, it's like, well, how did a soldier who's in South Pacific, what did their uniforms look like? That's really critical. They have to do that. But I don't care what a sunset looked like, you know, 50 years ago on a specific island. Like we're going to make the sky look beautiful in the moment for the show that we want to create. So that's how my process is a little bit different than some other designers. But I will look at like paintings, certain, uh, I will, re you can Google things like light through trees and I might find things that inspire me or we might talk about a certain painters or a certain artists, you know, influence on the design. And then we might go and look at those. Uh, but, but not, that's not always the case. And tech wise, do you have like a toolkit? Do you have an idea of I'm going to need, I like using uh, conventional lighting, moving lights. I like having pre-programmed so many looks or so many colors, a uh, certain palette. I sort of have my my tricks. We I think we all do. I have certain colors 
that I love. I have certain gobos that I love using. I have certain little programming tricks that I love. I have specific kind of lights that I like more than other lights. Um, you, after doing this long enough, you you do develop a, a system for everything, and you have a preferred way. And it really just becomes about how flexible can you be uh, if you can't have that, or how you can apply kind of your favorite approaches to each specific show. But you know, things I use like I draft in Vectorworks. Um, which is which is an architectural drafting program. That's what I make the light plots in. I use Lightrite, which is the kind of industry standard spreadsheet program for keeping track of all the data. Uh, my iPad is incredibly useful. I hold it during focus. I have it on the tech table, often with rehearsal footage on it, and I can kind of scrub through rehearsal footage. During previews, I sit with it and I take notes electronically, so it's really dark, and then those notes backup. Uh, so I have backup copies of my notes. So my iPad's really important. Same thing with like my iPhone has become super important. I can take it out and film a transition. And, and then, and then me and the director and the senior designer, we all sort of crowd around the phone and watch the thing that we just did and go, Oh, I see the the drop isn't landing early enough. And so the ability to just film something and then immediately watch it five times to figure out why a transition isn't working. That's really critical. And sometimes I'll film a dance number and then quickly airdrop it to the choreographer and the assistant director. And then we're all looking at the number that we just did and everyone's doing notes for 10 minutes and then we're gonna rerun it and refilm it. And so just like immediacy of technology like that has become super, super important. And like you said, stuff like moving lights and LEDs, they make everything go faster and more efficient if you know how to use them. That, I mean, those are some generic answers uh, because this isn't a lighting specific podcast per se. That's kind of things I I rely on. And you you always have in that toolkit things, you know, haze, fog, smoke, any, like how, how involved are you in all of those, uh, I guess, special effects that accompany a lighting vocabulary? Very involved. I like to tell people I'm actually a professional haze wrangler and sometimes I, I do lighting design because so much of what we do is trying to make the haze look good. And it's almost always very difficult. Um, but yeah, so there's like haze, which is the atmosphere that kind of stays in the air that allows you to see the lighting beams, which has become super popular. Um, I actually have really strong feelings about haze. I wrote a whole thing about it for American Theater Magazine a couple years ago. All the reasons why we use haze and why it's important and why we love it, but why it has to be used correctly. So that's haze. It's the stuff that hangs in the air. It definitely falls under the lighting design department. I'm always working on is it too much? Is it too little? When do we start it? When do we stop it? Are the actors complaining about it? Why is it so much more in this scene? Why does it look great in rehearsal? And then the minute the audience shows up, there's no haze, which is always happens because 500 people change the temperature and airflow of any room. Um, so that's haze. And then you have things like smoke, which you know, if you think about the wicked witch of the, which one? The West, when she melted that smoke, you might have fog or ground fog, which is that really low line fog that hugs the deck. Um, uh, I will do that. Generally, pyro is not necessarily under my purview. There's one theater I work at where there's a specifically a pyro technician uh, because th that gets a lot more sort of hairy you don't trigger pyro through the lighting console. Typically, it's not safe. There needs to be a separate pyro op, making sure that actors are clear and everything is safe. 
So I try not to control things like fire or water or or things like that that can that can either ruin lives or million dollars worth of equipment. Um, I prefer not to be not to be in charge of that from a light cue. But definitely haze, smoke, fog, all of those things matter, and we we have conversations about how to use them and when to use them and when to start them and when to, to stop them. I did a production of Sound and Music in 2019 where the ending of the show was the whole set flew up and the, the Von Trapp family walked up into a into a into just a blindingly white, sort of smoky, infinite space. Uh, and it was very difficult to wrangle, to figure out how to have all the smoke behind the set but not have it come through. And then the show ended. And then how do we get rid of the smoke for the curtain call? Because now they're bowing in what looks like 19th century London. And and it was we it, it was really difficult. We were putting fans all over the stage. If we ever do the show again, we said like we need to build a a ventilation system into the design to quickly get rid of the fog or the smoke. Now I'm doing it wrong. Get rid of the smoke before the, the curtain call. So we spend a ton of time uh, trying to wrangle all of that. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's different. And not only is it different in every theater, but it's different every night. It's different if it's cold out, if it's raining, if the doors got left open at intermission, if there's, if it's a full house or a half house, it's different every night. And so we try to build in systems that allow the board op to vary it to a certain degree here and there on a night by night basis. But it's, it, it can be quite a, quite a uh, task. So I guess you've had, uh, going back to the podcast, you've had quite some time to talk to your new friends now, right? And so we're in a period where we're expecting things to change for different reasons. And change is driven by designers quite a bit. So how are those conversations happening or what are they saying? Like post-2020 changes, way more technology, different ways of approaching, being more immersive, uh, using digital platforms. and Yeah, I mean, the short answer is nobody knows. And anybody who says they do know is just making it up. I mean, I, I absolutely think that we have crossed some sort of uh, uh, a threshold here in terms of streaming and live capturing shows. And I'm not sure what that means for the future. I don't know if that means that some shows will you'll now be able to see in person or, you know, on the internet. I particularly don't enjoy watching film theater. If it's something really, really good like Hamilton and it's, it's a million dollar production, I, I can certainly enjoy that. Most theaters don't have those kinds of production values. Um, I applaud all the theaters that have done streaming things and have pivoted to filming stuff. Um, I hope that it it shows that that stuff is possible. I will say theaters, regional theaters are not usually very good at capturing live theater on film. It's very difficult. Uh, the way camera sees light and dark is very different than the way our eyes see light and dark. And you have to light things differently and you have to film things differently. And it's it's quite complicated. And even even if this doesn't, translate to to streamed or video productions i hope maybe theaters have purchased some new equipment or understand better that you can film theater you just have to film in a certain way you need to adjust the follow spots you need to do certain things so i i hope there's a, some learning from that um you know i'm, I'm not sure what else certainly there 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 have been a lot of conversations in 2020 about equity and diversity and inclusion and that's obviously very separate than the technical side that's about the people and and i i know we all hope to see changes uh uh 
in that area. And certainly some theaters are already coming out and saying, you know, how they, they, how they hope to change moving forward. There've been conversations about like more humane work hours. I was talking about when I go to the theater at 9am and leave at midnight and do that for six days out of a week. That's pretty draining, especially if you have a family and you've got a, you've got a personal life and there are conversations about trying to have shorter days or five day work weeks. And I think those conversations are great. Um, as long as they're not asking for the exact same product for less time, which is always my concern. It's like, you only get five days instead of six days now, but you have to do the same amount of work. You just have to do it somehow harder and faster and better in less time, which, which isn't going to work. So we're going to have to figure out what that means if we're just spending less time in the theater. Where, where are we willing to sacrifice? So I think there are great conversations about who's who's behind the tech table and who's in these rooms and how many hours a day we're in them. But aside from that, I'm not sure anybody knows. And I think there's a lot of conversations going on about what will this be uh, coming out of 2021, whatever, whenever we go back. But it's a big mystery and, and we're just going to have to wait and see. I think the geek in me wants to see more, I don't know, Bluetooth-operated things on stage or maybe different kind of screens, not just a back screen or a backdrop that lights up, but can we do some, I saw this play in Mexico city a few years ago and it was like a box that it was all screens and it would draw the audience into the design. It was pretty cool. And it was basically light, light and projections. And I don't know, I just think like, okay, so we're now so much into screens. What else can we get out of it? I mean, I think we're definitely heading there. I, I feel like we would have been there anyways, regardless of uh, 2020. I mean, one thing I hope changes is that this, talking to people on the internet, becomes the new production meeting because we don't all need to get in a room anymore. We're all good at this. We all know now how to Zoom and share our screens and do all of this. And that would save a lot of time commuting and going to different you know, production meetings. Uh, uh, so I hope that... Um, I hope that communicating like this is a way, is something that sticks around. I think you're right about screens. I was just watching this behind the scenes thing for The Mandalorian, which I don't know if you've seen. I've not seen it, but I, I am fascinated by the technology, which is they filmed most of the show in this thing called The Volume, which was just like a, a, a dome of video walls and a video ceiling. Now, granted, they had $15 million an episode, but... I think, I mean, it doesn't look that different than like the Tony Awards. When, if you see the Tonys, they just put up digital versions of the scenery. I don't want to go there. I don't want to just go to all screens and digital digital scenery, but um, I, I don't think you can escape it. And, and we are seeing more of it. And anything that gets us away from sort of a flat projection screen, whether it's front projections or video or immersive projections or whatever, you know, uh, anything that feels more organic uh, is great. And, 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 the Mandalorian used combination of real scenery against the video. And that video was so good that you couldn't even tell where the, the real stuff ended and the video began. Um, so the technology is out there. Um, and and I, we are sort of incrementally uh, uh, approaching it. So it'll be interesting to see what, uh, yeah, where we go. But to me, there's still nothing as great as like a hand-painted backdrop either, or like hand-painted wood grain or marble. So I hope we don't lose that as well. I think that's important to keep that. Yeah, I mean, it's always the discussion about not to use technology for technology's sake. If it serves the purpose of the design, the story, and the creative process, then of course. I mean, I can't say how many times I have like 
uh, school theater directors say like, well, we want to use projections for our production of Little Mermaid. Okay, well, what's the dimension of your stage? Well, it's 40 feet wide by 25 feet deep. We have this projector that we got from the AV department. Can we use it to project the backdrop? It's like, no, you absolutely cannot. And if you go on YouTube, you will see lots of people trying and it, you know, it just doesn't work. It's not bright enough. It's not big enough. It's not clear enough. You can't see it. And so there are instances of people trying to use technology to solve problems that they're not equipped to solve with that kind of technology. Uh, so it has to be the right marriage of technology and, and problem or otherwise it's, you know, it's not going to work. What do you like most about your job? Well, uh, I mentioned earlier that like, I love eating new food in all sorts of cities, which I super miss. But anytime I, I travel to a new place, it's always like, what is the, what is the thing that you are guys, what are you famous for? Like, I want to eat the dish you all love. Um, and I love doing that. Um, I love, I have some collaborators, some designers, some directors who I've now worked with for years. And we have, we have a, we, we have a shorthand. We, we have a second nature, the way that we work together. And I have so much fun just working with people who I have that, that shared experience with. And we, we can reference, oh, like we did on that other show that worked. What if we tried it here? And just having that history with people uh, and especially with directors who say like, you know, that thing you did in that, like, it should be like that. And so I love having that. And I, you know, I just love creating magic on stage. It sounds so cheesy, but uh, I was super into magic as a kid. I still am. There was a really heavy period where I thought I wanted to be a magician. Thank God that went away. Uh, but like, I still, the, the desire is still there to, to create sort of magical wonders moments on stage. And, and I can do that with lighting and scenery and music. And, and so it's always about working and collaborating with those other departments to create those moments where an audience just, they gasp or they, they, they it just like gets an ovation or, or they're crying or whatever. The, the, you, can, you can create incredibly, incredibly powerful moments on stage with perfectly timed music and lighting and curtains and actors and notes and just every department just firing on all cylinders can create moments that it feels like you leave your body and you're experiencing something you know, you know otherworldly. And um, I, I try to create those kinds of moments in every show. And maybe there's only one or two of them, but if we can create some transformative moment that just takes you out of our kind of earthbound world for a second and, and, and what you see on stage, it just, it makes you feel something or, or makes you believe in something that, that, that you, your eyes can't reconcile with your mind what you're seeing because it, it's just, it just feels so powerful. Um, that that's what I love. And then um, those are the hardest moments to create. And so that's sort of, I always say it's like sort of like chasing a high, like a drug addict, but uh, hopefully a bit healthier. But it's like that high that you get when you make a moment like that, that just like lands and you just feel the whole audience just like you could hear a pin drop. Like I love trying to create those kind of moments. And so if you could change anything about your job or how the industry works, what would you change? I would like it to come back. No, uh, um, I, I would like there to be an industry anymore. Well, we mentioned we mentioned it briefly before, which was like the idea of how much, what is the balance of like work life and personal life? And, and, and aside from those conversations about 10 out of 12s or how much time you're spending in the theater, I, I, I hope that this time away when we all have really lived in our personal lives, that, that we all 
we all have a better appreciation of people's like outside of work life and that people respect that time. And that can work both ways. Like I've been on so many production meetings where nothing gets done and nothing gets said. And it's kind of like, why did a, this could have been an email that like famous meme that said, this could have been an email Um, or I'll be on a production meeting. And it's like, well, I have all these questions. Oh, well, the person who has those answers isn't on this call. Okay. Well then I, you know, we're, this is a waste of my time and a waste of your time. And so we shouldn't all, we should respect each other's time and we should gather when we need to gather and we should discuss when we need to discuss. And if we don't have anything to say, then, then we shouldn't. And we should do it in an email or we should have a, you know, a side conversation. And then conversely, you can also say things like, if, if I don't get the scenic design in time or, or we don't have a, you know, a meeting with the director in time and suddenly the whole design process has been crammed into two weeks right before it's due, that's also not respecting people's time because we might have other things going on, other shows. And now instead of using the sort of generous two months that we had to design this thing, now we're trying to get it all done in the last two weeks before it's due. And that's also not respectful of people's time. So on sort of both ends of the spectrum, I hope that we think about how we communicate and how we share information and do it in a way that is is fair to everyone's time and make sure that we're not capitalizing on on what could be people's personal time um, with work stuff simply because like people don't have their act together. Um, so I, I just think just respecting everyone's time a little bit more. Um, um, maybe, maybe that's something we'll learn after having oodles of time. I agree. And I think, you know, you were saying just before about the Zoom conversations, not everything has to happen in person. So the way that you can respect people's time is not to call them all to production meetings where they sit around the table in every instance on a weekly basis, that it could be done online. So the rest of the day is... Totally, totally. And look, I love talking, clearly. Like, I love talking. But, like, these shows that have a meeting every week and everybody gets on and you go, like... It's like, well, yeah, I talked to the lighting department about lighting stuff. I don't have anything else. Do you have anything? No one has anything for the group. It's like, why did we all block out this time in our day to just do nothing? Um, this doesn't feel like a, a good or respectful use of people's time. There's one other thing, uh, which I think um, goes back to what we were talking about with like the equity and the diversity uh, of, of opening up our rooms to more people, which is that one thing I like to see change is you know, it's unlikely that like a Broadway show is going to put on a brand new designer that's fresh out of school that isn't tested. A Broadway show is a multi-million dollar production. You're going to put in people who are experienced in those roles. So it really falls on those smaller theaters, the community theaters, the summer stocks, the theaters that aren't putting on million dollar productions to, to become the breeding ground and the stepping stone for new talent, whether that's designers or directors or general managers or musicians and 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 so so there is a crop of people when it comes to regional theater when it comes to broadway who have years of experience and so if those smaller theaters aren't hiring the new batch of people if they aren't going out on a limb and trying out new artists then then no one else is going to because that that's the beginning of the path and and i really think it and i think a lot of those theaters might not necessarily realize the responsibility that they carry in in creating new generations of theater artists, but it's really on them to give opportunities to new artists to hone their craft, to build a resume, to build a body of work. So when they get to higher levels, 
people are being hired across the diversity spectrum and ac across the range because everyone's been given those opportunities, you know, right out of school when you're 20 years old or whatever. So I, I, those theaters, they really have a big responsibility to, to, be, to be looking for that new talent. Um, that's another thing I'd like to see change. That's a great point. You know, there's got to be that pipeline towards Broadway and it needs to be. Yes. Someone's got to hire the new people. Interesting. Well, where can the, our audience see your work and listen to your podcast? Give us that information. At the moment, in a time machine, you could go backwards or forwards because I'm not working. I mean, you know, we've been alluding to it, but like I haven't, the last show I did was in March of 2020. I was in Miami. I got back to New York March 13th and I haven't worked since then. And I don't know when I'll work again. It's supposed to be in April. I don't know if that will happen. It seems maybe unlikely. Who knows what the rest of the year looks like? So where you can see my work right now is on my website, which is uh, coreypaddock.com or my Instagram, which is at coreypaddock. I haven't done any like exciting stream or Zoom shows or anything like that. Um, so un unfortunately, aside from the stuff that exists in the past, that's a great place to see it. Um, I mean, this isn't specifically my work, but I was also the associate on the on Newsies, the Broadway musical that everybody loved, including me, um, which you can find on Netflix, um, which is a great, that's a great video capture that um, I was super involved with. We spent a week in LA relighting the, the production for cameras, and that's why it looks as great as it does. So I'm really proud of how that turned out. I think it's still on Netflix or Disney Plus or something like that. So you can check out Newsies. And then, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential work later in the year. I just don't know what's going to, um, what's going to happen. I'm supposed to go back to Oslo in Sarasota to do a production of Billy Elliot. Uh, I'm supposed to go to Tuacon in Utah to do Beauty and the Beast and a production of Sweet Charity in Jupiter, Florida. And I've been working at the Kennedy Center and, and I don't know when those shows will come back up. So uh, I guess stay tuned. We'll find out when work comes back again. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. And the podcast? The podcast, right. So the podcast is at inonepodcast.com. It's also on the iTunes store, on Spotify, on Stitcher. Um, aside from the interviews that I've been doing, it sort of took some months off, but I'm starting to ramp back up and, and starting to do some more interviews or roundtables. Um, there's also been a great mini series that my friend Alan Edwards has been doing, who is a lighting designer. And uh, he's been doing a great little mini series about... Uh, questions about equality and diversity and, and also specifically talking to a lot of black designers and their experience in, in, in the industry and how we bring about change. And so I encourage everyone to go check out, it's in the same feed as, as the regular podcast, but um, I encourage everyone to go check out his uh, series, uh, which he's having some great conversations. Uh, so that is still ongoing and there's more episodes coming of that as well. So we've got sort of a twofold thing happening. Amazing. Corey, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on Theatre Art Life and sharing your experience. It's been wonderful to get to know you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Of course. It was great chatting with you guys. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life, the 
global media site for entertainment at www.theaterartlive.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theater at Life podcast.